0: Hello, I'm Simon Newton and welcome to an extra edition of the CITREP podcast. Hybrid grey zone cyber information. The concepts of warfare have changed dramatically in the 21st century. It's no longer clearly defined simply by kinetic fighting. The many costs of fighting get even higher, so getting your way without using heavy metal is preferable. Words, however, cost nothing and can be powerful. They can be used to change views, actions even governments, and in doing so perhaps prevent war. That's the argument put forward in a new book, Subversion, the Strategic Weaponization of Narratives. The author is Dr. Andreas Krieg, a senior lecturer at King's College and the Royal College of Defense Studies. I've been talking to him about how words can change the world. Andreas, just explain in in simple terms what we're talking about. What is a narrative and why
1: is adjusting it so powerful? Hi, um, thanks for having me. So a narrative is basically the storyline that we use to kind of package our information and facts that we want to transport. So when we communicate, we obviously don't communicate via facts, we communicate via stories, and the stories is kind of the fluffy part around the facts that make the the facts more palatable. So we're all engaged in, in using narratives. We use narratives on a daily basis, and it's an essential part of communication. It's an essential part of societal dialogue, civil societal communication, and it's a very integral part of political dialogue as well and it can mobilize and demobilize depending on how you frame a particular issue and you know we've seen that with with media discourses and media narratives um and so they can be weaponized and the the better you do it particularly a day of interconnectivity hyperconnectivity in the age of social media the better you do it the more you can actually influence the more you can mobilize the more you can polarize and the more you can achieve the Objectives of warfare, which is about changing your opponent's will without actually using kinetic force or violence. So,
0: I, I mean, in the 21st century, you mentioned there we're talking about social media. Is is that the sort of key key means of delivery of this
1: sort of narrative adjustment? Weaponized narratives have been around forever, obviously, um, but it has been the, the interconnectivity that has come. With social media, has made it much easier to actually penetrate target audiences from afar, um, doing so uh, anonymously, doing so via intermediaries and what I call information networks of different intermediaries. But I would also say it's not only about social media; it's about using academia, using newspapers and and and, and general media. Uh, it's about using policymakers, PR companies. Uh, and a, a, a huge host of different intermediaries that can help you transport narratives. So it's not just social media, but social media can really bring you the mass and the deep penetration.
0: Can you give me an example of what you're what you're talking about? I mean, you, you mentioned Russia a lot in the book as, mm. as a sort of uh, as, as the experts at this, if you like, in terms of weaponizing these narratives. I mean, how have they done that? We know about the elections in the US, for instance, in, in the past few years. How have they
1: weaponized narratives there? So yeah, that, that's kind of the standard uh, example that everyone is using, How what Russia has been doing during the US elections, particularly 2016 and 2020, but also during the Brexit vote here in the UK. What they have tried is they have tapped into existing grievances within local organic audiences, people who are disenfranchised, who feel that they have not been really protected by those elites, for example, people who have anti-Western, anti-American sentiments, even in the United States, anti-government sentiments, people who are looking for alternative views and are receptive to alternative narratives about how the world works. And what, what the Russians have done over years and years, and that's very important, it's not an easy tap-in, tap-out sort of thing. You need to ripen your networks, you need to ripen your audience audiences and that takes years and years to do and and the Russians have done it they probably start around 2014 in the United States and we see the the first result in 2016 where they have really polarized the political discourse prior to the election of Donald Trump not only to get Trump elected but also to kind of bash and undermine the integrity and uh, the reputation of of uh, Hillary Clinton at the time but gathering I think people gathering people around particular issues um, that that people were already caring about anyway but amplifying it but basically destroying uh, consensus civil societal consensus making it ever more difficult for audiences civil society to come together and agree on an, on, a, on a particular issue which is something that we have seen happening already uh, across liberal uh, particular liberal democracies where it becomes ever more difficult to build political, socio-political consensus. And um, the Russians have done it in the United States and the fallout was obviously an extremely polarized political discourse in the 2016 election campaign and then 2020 election campaign and we're probably going to see more polarization in the 2024 election campaign. But they've done it across Africa as well and, and here this is why I'm using also the United Arab Emirates as a, as a small state that has emulated the Russians. They've done it in Egypt, they've done it in Tunisia uh, where they have polarized and mobilized local audiences to an extent to make them, uh, you know, to kind of increase mass protests, but also putting pressure on governments, sometimes supporting coups, sometimes supporting uh, uh, the military kind of intervening in politics. All this, basically what what weaponized narratives have done is creating an information context or pretext uh, for for the military to intervene and overthrow existing governments. And it's all been this kind of mobilization effect is what I'm talking about in the book. You can use weaponized narratives to mobilize or demobilize audiences to do something that they anyway want to do, um, and it seems organic, but through the amplification you can really, really increase that mobilization effect and cre- create mass mobilisation offline as well, which is very important. So you have people on the streets protesting, sometimes protests turning violent, which in itself is, if you will, an act of political violence that is can be entirely steered and somewhat even managed through the information environment. So,
0: so it's not just um, influencing people's thoughts, it's actually getting them to practically do
1: something about that. Y- yes. So th- this is where I kind of draw the line where I'm saying there is a lot of polarization going on in the information environment which stays in the virtual domain it it stays in the realm of ideas but it is when it translates into the physical domain when it becomes physical whether this is through whether this is through protests, through voting behaviors uh, uh, sometimes people picking up arms and fighting uh, as we've seen in the middle east where a lot of this polarization becomes increasingly violent physically violent on the streets because of the severity of the grievances that people are feeling and 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 people respond to. So it, it, it is when it translates from the translates from the polarization in the information environment into polarization in the physical domain. So in mean, our
0: audience will be very, very familiar with psyops and, you know, information operations, which have obviously been used for centuries of, of, of military conflicts. How, how is this
1: different nuanced in a way from that? It's not different at all. Psyops are part of subversion campaigns. Psyops, though, are usually used in a very tactical or maybe at best in an operational context where it's about. A particular fairly small contained operation in a, in, a, in, a, in a contained locality where you're trying to have a trying to shape a particular audience what I think what we're missing with psyops and I think this is where we need to go next also you know from a British or American or Western point of views we need to understand how we do this strategically so that we can actually shift audiences strategically in in you know with our adversary to ensure that our adversary never goes to war never goes to that it comes close to that military threshold and doing that preventively. And the important bit of this is it has to be done constantly. So psyops are usually done in response. They're usually quite reactive. They're very rarely proactive. And and, and very often they're not really integrated in an overall strategic campaign. They're integrated into, operational, uh, into operations and, and tactics and they usually support military operations. And what I'm talking about with subversion is it is not connected to a military operation. It's not connected, it's not a pretext to to a military operation. It's not a support vehicle for military operations. Subversion is about a constant engagement with other audiences to kind of have battle out ideas and and, and, and fight over, over narratives, which once you get engaged in it, you cannot stop. It's, it's going to be a constant engagement. So just, I mean, to boil that down, if
0: if I as an individual are going to be, uh, uh, my narrative is going to be adjusted, how, how is that delivered to me via social media, via, by TV, radio, media, those sorts of, my worldview is effectively sort of um, massaged.
1: Well, it depends on who you are. So if you're an average, uh, you know, informed participant in the information environment, you would obviously be fed narrative through intermediaries on social media mostly twitter facebook uh, and so on but also media narratives because obviously journalists are also part of that social media sphere they are being fat narratives journalists can be prompted to write something that they would otherwise not not write about you kind of change their consensus as well and then help through their writing change societal consensus or consensus of, of, of larger audiences. And if you're a policymaker, and I think that's that's also what I'm writing about in the book, if you're a policymaker, your 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 perception is shaped by your constituents who already have been targeted through social media and, and media campaigns, but also what you read in the newspapers. If you're an MP, obviously you, you, you're being fed particular narrative through through the media, through your staffers who can be influenced by PR guys and, and, and spin doctors. Um, but but also through the discourse with other um, with with other MPs and other politicians who themselves might have been drawn in might have been paid might have been uh, courted by by external uh, parties or external uh, potential adversaries. The UAE is a very interesting case study in this respect. They've invested millions, tens of millions, every year to court. MPs or uh, represent members of uh, of the House of Representatives or senators in 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 the United States, and they're doing it in, entirely legally. Not, none of this uh, very rarely is illegal, um, but most of the time, very legally, and um, change how they think about about particular issues, and that is then transported into political discourse, which then could potentially have impact on legislation. And I give that one case study of Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, in the in the wake of the Gulf crisis in 2017. 2017 was prompted uh, by the UAE to read out a particular statement in the Rose Garden in June 2017 um, that was entirely drafted by intermediaries and PR companies on the payroll of the United Arab Emirates. Thereby the most powerful man in the world was prompted to make a particular statement through subversive means. And I give another example about the David Cameron uh, um, administration and a government here in, in the UK when they were prompted through various different means uh, by the United Arab Emirates to start and launch an investigation in the Muslim Brotherhood, into the Muslim Brotherhood in 2014, um, entirely through a subversive means and something that the government otherwise wouldn't have done. And there were a, diff- a lot of different channels coming together in, in, in 2014 to prompt the, the Cameron government to launch that investigation. The, the first thing was obviously media discourse, but also expert discourse, where the UAE were funding a lot of research among think tankers, uh, universities, into the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so clearly there was they, they prompted a... Uh, people to to think about this issue which wasn't which which was at the time a non issue um then they used their military means of influence by saying if we, we if you want us to buy military equipment you better start investigating the Muslim brotherhood so there were different angles media discourse academic discourse military to military discourse that all put pressure on the government to say actually we need to do something here and that's what subversion is all about over time you can change consensus on a particular issue and that's what essentially warfare is all about it's a clash of wills i mean you you mentioned david cameron obviously him being prompted presumably we do it to other people as well Obviously, influence, and that's that's the, the game of influence. Influence is, you know, this is as old as, as, as diplomacy. and We do it, everyone has done it. I mean, I'm drawing on one very good example that where I th- I think the West did something very similar to what I'm talking about, is Oper- Operation Ajax in 1953 in, in Iran, where MI6 and CIA really tried through various means of discourse and influence to shape perception inside Iran to kind of create a pretext for a coup that would oversee this only elected... Uh, Iranian president to, to be overthrown. So this it, it has happened in the information domain, it has happened in the intelligence game, um, but it, it has been an exception. Where I'm saying now, we're seeing increasingly that as we try to stay below the threshold of war, In that gray zone, subversion has a lot more applicability. It can be applied more easily, more readily. You can achieve similar objectives over time uh, as through military means. And that's why it it becomes ever more attractive, particularly for authoritarian countries because they themselves have a better grip and control over their information environment, which obviously creates a huge vulnerability for us in liberal information environments because we can't control the information flow as much as they can. You mentioned in the book that uh, we, we exist now, I think you say, in a constant state of
0: unpeace. I think that's the phrase you use. And, and it makes, yeah. the obvious question now is how do we defend ourselves against these weaponized narratives?
1: There, there are a lot of. It's all about resilience, really, because as I said before, we live in a liberal civil societal environment, uh, a liberal information environment that we want to protect. We want to in- protect the integrity of it. Um, that means education is kind of the, the bottom line i mean that's where that's where it all starts uh, education making people more information savvy uh, particularly through curriculums and uh, curricula in schools and, and and also in universities but beyond that um what can state institutions do to defend ourselves i think we need to develop a, a very strong grand strategic narrative for our, our own societies and our own countries here in the uk we need to come up with a new sort of grand strategic narrative that kind of creates a buy-in Uh, from broad, broad parts of society where we can recreate a very strong, solid, consensus around issues that you know about Britishness British values um, that make feel people feel comfortable um, because only if you really buy into your country in that grand strategic narrative and what it stands for you can really start to defend that country um, and we see in societies where this is breaking apart already you're creating where there is no strong grand strategic narrative you're creating vulnerabilities then that others can exploit and and lastly I would also say that we need to get on the offensive as well uh, as bad as it sounds but you know we're being attacked constantly so we need to fight back uh, and and hurt the adversaries in their information environments where it hurts the most and um, for that we need to develop capabilities that I don't think we have at the moment so of of course the British military has been engaged
0: in this sort of information operations for for many years we have 77 brigade at the moment Uh,
1: how you know looking forward could that capability be expanded I think that's that's an important point the capability exists in its infancy but it obviously needs to be expanded if we were to compete with countries like russia iran china uh, or, or the united arab emirates and i think we need to move away from that idea that these are people in uniform who are sitting behind their computers and operating on behalf of the state i think what it comes to is developing networks information networks as i'm talking about in my in my book and networks are kind of the antithesis to a military hierarchy and and that's why i think that sort of capability shouldn't necessarily rest with the army or with a milit- with a uniformed unit but should be a network that is tied into an institution quite centrally uh, in, in, in the UK that sits strategically above the military, sits strategically above the MOD and other institutions and draws on all the networks that the UK has to offer. Because it is, about, it is about not only building networks, but also using and tapping into the networks, influence networks that the UK already has, of which many, if not most, are actually not under the control of the military or the government and i think that's where 77 brigade can support some of that activity but i think it should sit with an organization that is more strategically thinking that is thinking thinking about grand strategy as well and that can draw on all you know a whole of government approach which is what influence operations are all about is about whole of government and whole of nation if you will uh, and and I think that's why 777 Brigade is quite limited in the way it is set up um, and obviously we've we've been in, involved in operation seven Brigade has been involved in operations quite successfully uh, since 2014 uh, vis-a-vis Russia uh, when we saw the invasion of of, of, of the Donbass and also Crimea um, and I think what 777 Brigade has done already uh, in the Baltic states. Is kind of really building consensus around issues uh, where, where, whenever Russia wanted to try to exploit a particular issue in the Baltic states, it, it, it was quite successful, the 7th, and 7th Brigade, in supporting uh, local audiences, in, in creating more resilience against those narratives, weaponized narratives coming from Russia, and by, by creating a robust a core of uh, within these audiences to, to fight back and and obviously that has taken years and years to do but again it's it's quite bespoke it's fairly tactical or if maybe operational but it's not really put together into an integrated into much broader uh, network which is what it what it requires
0: i mean just to mention ukraine the narrative you know there is this v- vast difference between our narrative and the russian narrative on that on that war i mean th- the big task challenge for governments around the world now is to maintain that narrative, to maintain support for Ukraine over what could potentially be a very long
1: war. And obviously we now have a US election looming where that narrative could be changed. Absolutely right. Uh, It's not just the United States. I think we're facing domestically, across Europe in particular, we are facing an issue of resilience when it comes to that pro-Ukraine narrative, especially as we're hitting the second winter, uh, if if energy prices are going through the roof again, people will ask questions about why are we in Ukraine? Why are we supporting Ukraine? Uh, why are we fighting Russia? Why don't we go and, and negotiate with Russia? And we've seen, especially on the continent, quite a lot of these um, discourses uh, appear. Germany is a great case study of that, where a large, I'd say a third of, of the pub, of the public is asking questions about why Germany is supporting Ukraine. And and that these kind of questions will be asked in, in the UK, they will be asked in the United States. And then you, you might face a, 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 a policymaker such as, uh the hungarian prime minister who says actually we shouldn't support ukraine we we should engage with russia so um the current um rallying around the flag in ukraine is not sustainable in the, in the long run so a lot of information operations influence operations will have to target domestic audiences before even thinking about what we do with the russians because there is a latent existing uh, anti-Western, anti-American narrative that is looming across the developing world, across the global South, but also within Europe. And we need to come up with a very robust narrative of why we need to support Ukraine. And I feel that the narrative that we've pushed out, that we've used over the last year and a half, um, is, is, is maybe waning and its impact might be waning. So we might have to look into, into new narratives in, in trying to galvanize support. Dr. Krieg, thank you very much. Thank you. News, discussions, and analysis. This is SitRap.